Nearly 10 years ago, I preached uh, on this topic for the very first time in this pulpit, the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We were studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's one of the many reasons that I've taken on, we've taken on the discipline of expository preaching in this church. Expository preaching uh, is the consecutive verse-by-verse unfolding of books of Scripture. And it's my conviction that that commitment is perhaps the, the simplest way, the most clear way to show our desire to come underneath the whole counsel of God together as a church. And though I knew that when I was beginning Matthew's Sermon on the Mount back in the fall of 2008, that we'd eventually be encountering the passage on divorce and remarriage, that still didn't prepare me for the wrestling match, not between me and the congregation, but between me and the text that ensued the week as I took on that passage. In fact, as I took my first run at the passage that Sunday morning, I found myself so dissatisfied with my conclusion that I changed my position, I turned on a dime and preached another view the next week to a bewildered congregation. And then after sufficiently confusing all of us for two weeks straight, I decided to have a Q&A in place of the sermon so that we could just get everything out on the table and ask questions and get answers and um, iron out any lingering issues. Not exactly what you might call an auspicious beginning, right, with reference to a topic of Scripture. Well, in the decades since this time, I've continued to study the Bible on this topic as well as witness my own marriage grow from eight years to now 18 plus years. I've walked with couples through premarital counseling and marital counseling, some contemplating divorce, some of whose marriages were salvaged, others that weren't. And I think if there's one thing I've learned about this topic over the years, it's that it can become incredibly complex. And the role of the preacher is not to complexify, but to clarify and to simplify. Former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once famously said, see if you can track with him on this, he said, I would not give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the, complicit, for the simplicity that stands on this side of complexity. Which is to say that if we stop short of understanding something just because it's complicated, we're never going to communicate it well. On the other hand, if we understand something complicated and yet stop short of saying it simply and clearly, then we're committing the opposite error. Add to that the fact that over the last 10 years, I've held a view on divorce and remarriage that I don't believe has borne particularly good fruit, if I can be perfectly honest. If you were with us just this past spring in the Mound for You Adult Sunday School class, then you heard it. I taught for two weeks. It's the view that I've held for the better part of a decade. It's also a view on divorce and remarriage that while biblically defensible, and I want to show you that this morning, biblically defensible, I've come to the conclusion that it's not practically sensible. It's a view that as I've held it has, listen to this, prevented me from conducting a single wedding over the last four years. And I've had plenty of opportunities. It's a view that's put me in an awkward position relative to our other elders, for I have been unable to persuade them of the view that I held. 
And it's a view that I've come to believe that while biblically defensible is entirely biblical unnecessary, not to mention inadequate given the sweep of the Bible's teaching on the subject. So this morning, I hope I've got your attention anyway, um, once again, the topic is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And why? Because that's the next verse in Luke's gospel. And I'll ask you to open up there right now to page 876 in the Red Bibles. Luke's gospel, chapter 16, verse 18. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 18. Between Luke 16, 17 and Luke 16, 19 stands, you guessed it, Luke 16, 18. And as far as I can tell, it has little to nothing to do with what Aaron took up last Sunday, and it seems to have even less to do with what Andy is going to preach on next Sunday. And so... Here we are, uh, taken alone, isolated from the rest of the Bible's teaching on this subject. Luke 16, 18 is a text without a context. In Luke 16, 18, Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman, uh, he who marries a, divor- a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. At the same time, Luke 16, 18 is not the only place in the Gospels where Jesus weighs in on this topic. Other passages include Mark chapter 10, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 19. And furthermore, we have what the Apostle Paul writes underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then finally, when set within the broadest context of all, the Old and New Testaments taken together, we begin to get a sense of the forest for the trees on this topic. Luke 16, 18 is a tree, and it's a, a single tree. It's an important tree, but not until we set it alongside all the other trees do we get a sense of the sweep of the biblical forest here. So this morning, our text is Luke 16, 18, and other texts, like 17 of them. And it's my hope, if not my achievement today, that we'd all have an opportunity to consider afresh what the Bible teaches concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, far and away, the most important thing to me in this message is to get what God's Word says about this topic right. After 10 years, to get it right. And secondly, it's important to me that we say it simply. You've probably heard before that a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. You ever heard that one? I think that's true. So you need to know that today, especially, I'm striving for clarity. I do not want to be misunderstood. And lastly, I'd like for us to be practical, because without a clear theology of what the Bible says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we're not going to have a clear practice. We need to know what it looks like to apply these principles from God's Word in the real world where we all live. So let's start here. Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Seemed like a good place to start today. Hebrews 13.4 commands us, let marriage be held in honor among all all. That's the reason why I want to do a deep dive into what the Bible says about this this topic today. In the church, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And you ask, well, all who are married? And yes, of of course, but you'll notice that Hebrews 13.4 does not so limit its audience to those who are married. When Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all, it means that marriage is to be held in honor among all not simply those who find themselves married. 
Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all, but Hebrews 13.4 means, let marriage be held in honor among those who are single. Let marriage be held in honor among children. Let marriage be held in honor among those who are engaged or contemplating becoming engaged. Let marriage be held in honor among those who are widowed. Let marriage be held in honor among those who are divorced. And yes, let marriage be held in honor among those who are, who are married. Let marriage be held in honor, I hope I haven't left anyone out, among all. Now, why? Because of what the Bible says about three things. And that brings us to point number one. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Why? Because of what the Bible says about the definition of marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all because of what the Bible says about the definition of of marriage. In Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in this description, Jesus defines marriage, perhaps you've heard it before, as one man, one woman, one flesh for life. Ever heard that? That's a good way to think about it. One man, one woman, one flesh for life. And the concept of marriage as the coming together of one man and one woman in a lifetime commitment is one that Jesus clearly endorses. And furthermore, Jesus believes is simply written into the fabric of the created order because here he's quoting Genesis 2.24. Therefore, I would conclude that our Lord, were he a resident of our country in the 21st century, would be radically out of step with the prevailing culture on the matter of what's known as so-called same-sex marriage. It does not matter how the highest court in our land defines marriage, for there is a court with a higher authority that has already unequivocally addressed this issue. It's not that there ought not to be so-called same-sex marriage, it's that there cannot be so-called same-sex marriage. And because of this reality, you'll never hear me speak of it without that modifier, so-called, in front of it. I learned that from John Piper. Or by placing the term in air quotes, same-sex marriage. I've also been impressed with the way that Doug Wilson speaks of same-sex mirage, for that's what it is. It's an utter mirage. No matter how many laws or rulings we might pass to the contrary, so-called same-sex marriage does not and cannot exist. Now, the reason for this is not spelled out by Jesus in the Gospels, but rather by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul makes something plain that Jesus in Matthew 19 does not unfold. And by the way, this is one of those sermons, as I, as I probably have alluded to, that we're going to be all over the Bible. So if you simply want to sit back and listen and instead of turning to every single cited scripture here this morning, go right ahead. You will not hurt my feelings. Today we're doing what amounts to a biblical theology of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're going to be handling a lot of scripture today, so no points off if you just want to sit back and listen and take a few notes. Now the entire letter of Paul to the Ephesians is given over to the topic of union with Christ, the doctrine of union with Christ and its practical application in the life of believers. So in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is speaking to husbands and wives. And in this chapter, 
what we learn is that of all of the images that the New Testament offers, and it offers many to describe the union relationship that Christ has with His church, it's this one, marriage. Uh, Nothing rivals that of marriage. In this picture, the husband takes his cues from Christ as the, the lover and the leader of his bride. Correspondingly in this picture, the wife takes her cues from the church, offering a strengthening submission to her husband. And once again, we see the words of Genesis 2.24, this time quoted in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And in Ephesians 5.32, Paul adds an apostolic, an inspired apostolic comment that is worth its weight in gold. Reflecting on the incredible reality as a man, of a man and a woman together, as husband and wife, Paul writes, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Did you hear him? The two should become one flesh. This mystery is profound. This mystery is deep. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, if we were to draw together the truths from Matthew 19 and Ephesians 5 into a single definition, we might say that marriage is designed to be the lifelong drama of one man and one woman in a covenant relationship that reflects the union of Christ and his church. That's what marriage is. It is the lifelong drama, and let's admit, sometimes it's high drama, right? The lifelong drama that a world can look on between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship that reflects the union of Christ and his church. In other words, marriage is about the gospel. We need to be careful lest we overstate the importance of marriage and equate marriage with the gospel. Let it be said loud and clear that marriage is not the gospel. At the same time, it's true to say that marriage is about the gospel. Marriage is the supreme earthly portrait of the gospel. The Bible says so. And because of that, we care Because we care about our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, marriage ought to be held in honor among all. For the sake of our 2020 vision, marriage ought to be held in honor among all. Now, the next question that naturally follows from that, of course, is how? How do we hold marriage in honor? What does it look like to honor marriage in this way? And there are a lot of good and helpful ways to answer that question. But one of those ways, interestingly, might be to make a careful study of what the Bible says about the end of marriage. We know what makes a marriage, but what, if anything, breaks a marriage? Because knowing and living in light of the Bible's answer to this question can actually help us to honor marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Why? First, because of what the Bible says about the definition of marriage but secondly, because of what the Bible says about the dissolution of marriage. That's point number two. What the Bible says about the dissolution of marriage. Does Scripture allow for the dissolution of marriage? We know the state allows for it. We know that the culture expects it. We know that the church for perhaps a generation now has um, turned what amounts to a blind eye to it. That's not the question. The question is, does Scripture allow for it? 
does God's word properly interpreted provide any grounds whatsoever for a legitimate God-honoring divorce? Now, the view that I've held over the last 10 years in this church is no. No, the Bible does not teach that there are any legitimate grounds for divorce. It's known as the permanence view. The permanence view of divorce and remarriage. And I need to state publicly today that I believe that I have been wrong. Yet again. Won't be the last time. But not because the permanence view is not biblically defensible. On the contrary, I believe the permanence view is eminently biblically defensible on scriptural grounds. That's why I held it as long as I did. Now the problem is not that the permanence view doesn't speak truthfully with the reference to handling of Holy Scripture. I believe that it does. I'm going to hope to demonstrate that in just a minute. Rather, it's that the permanence view doesn't speak exhaustively with reference to the handling of Holy Scripture. So here's, here's the permanence view. If you've never heard it before, listen closely. It's a, it's a simple case to make. It's a very simple case to make. The permanence view that the Bible allows for no divorce or remarriage begins with the text that we just read, Luke 16, 18, where Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And here in Luke 16, 18, you'll notice that Jesus offers no exceptions to this rule. Similarly, in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Once again, Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, Jesus offers no exceptions to the rule. But then we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now here in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, we have our first exception to the rule. Jesus offers on the face of it what appears to be a, poten a, poten a potential ground for divorce. And it's found in that phrase, except for sexual immorality. Now, interestingly, in Matthew 19.9, as Terry read for us just a few moments ago, we see the same ground Jesus repeats in Matthew 19.9, but in, in there, in that case, he adds the permission to remarry. So Matthew 19.9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So here's what we need to face. The Gospel of Luke, as well as the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus teaches on this topic, what we have are absolute categorical prohibitions of divorce and remarriage. No exceptions. But then when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we do counter an exception, except for sexual immorality, which I think leads us to ask at least two questions. First, what is sexual immorality? And second, why does Matthew list it and not Mark or Luke? That question has plagued me for a decade. Well, one reason, a very good reason that folks have given over the years as they've looked at these passages in Matthew 5 and 19 is to explain why Jesus includes an exception and Mark doesn't, is that only Matthew specifically includes the righteous 
intentions of Joseph to divorce Mary in Matthew chapter 1. You recall that in Matthew chapter 1, prior to the wedding night, this is during their betrothal period, Joseph discovers that Mary is expecting a baby. And one thing he's sure of is that he is not the father. So Joseph concludes that Mary has been unfaithful to him at some point during their engagement. Of course, we know better. This isn't just any baby. This is the Savior. He has been conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit, but Joseph didn't know that yet. And one thing that must be understood in the first century Jewish culture is that their version of engagement called betrothal was a legal arrangement. So legal, in fact, for one to break it was considered divorce. That's one of the reasons that Matthew goes out of his way to describe Joseph's behavior as upright as well as within the limits of the Mosaic law. We read in Matthew 1.19 that Mary's husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And add to that the fact that we know that the term sexual immorality definitely included unfaithfulness during betrothal because it's this exact phrase that the Pharisees throw at Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 41, when they say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, which is to imply they believe Jesus was. When you don't accept the virgin birth, the only thing that they can conclude, just like Joseph back in Matthew 1.19, was that some sort of unfaithfulness had taken place during that betrothal period. Now, that's the view. At least it's, it's one way to handle what's called the permanence view of divorce and remarriage. When Jesus teaches on the subject, there are no exceptions except for the case of sexual immorality, unfaithfulness during the betrothal period, which in Jesus' day was a legal arrangement, therefore tantamount to divorce were you to break it. Now, I, I don't know if that sounds convoluted to you. It, it doesn't to me. For the better part of 10 years, I found myself persuaded of the permanence view. It, it has a several advantages. It reads Matthew and Mark straight up. It also relates to the exception clause in Matthew in a way that's clear. It's got an explanation for the context. The ground on which Jesus builds his potential case for divorce and remarriage is that sexual immorality means faithful, unfaithfulness during betrothal, which is clearly defensible when you look at John 8, 41. So if I'm still persuaded that it's biblical, why have I modified my position? My answer to that question is that while sexual immorality includes unfaithfulness during betrothal, that does not exhaust the biblical meaning of this term. In the New Testament, while sexual immorality is inclusive of unfaithfulness during that engagement period, as according to John 8:41, sexual immorality clearly takes on Cases like incest, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It includes homosexuality, as seen in Jude 7. It includes prostitution, which is clear from Revelation 17, 1 and Revelation 17, 4. In other words, rather than some highly technical term in the first century only referring to one type of sexual sin, sexual immorality really is more like, as I heard one pastor say it, the, the junk drawer of first century sexual immorality. It's the broadest possible way to speak of any sort of sexual infidelity. Add to that the fact that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 
The Apostle Paul widens the potential grounds for divorce and remarriage in the case that Jesus did not address. And that would be when a believing spouse is deserted by an unbelieving spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is dealing with a situation where a Christian husband or a wife finds themselves married to someone who's not a believer, which, of course, occurs either when a believer enters into a marriage with an unbeliever ill-advised, or much more commonly, two unbelievers enter into a marriage together and one of them comes to know Jesus. That's exactly what Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians 7. What do you do then? Well, Paul was quite clear that believers are not to seek a divorce from their unbelieving spouse. However, he says, if an unbelieving spouse seeks a divorce from them, that the believer is not under obligation to hold on to their vows. 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Were we to ask the question today, okay, that's the case where you're deserted by an unbelieving spouse, but what about if you're deserted by a believing spouse, someone who at least professes faith in Christ? And in that situation, I think that we ought to consider Matthew 18, and that would be to seek to encourage the believing spouse in corrective church discipline if they're a believer after all. And over the course of the discipline process, we would seek repentance and reconciliation. If over the course of the discipline process, the spouse does not repent and seek reconciliation, then the church is left with no other option but to do what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, and that's to cast them out of the fellowship, treating them as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, as an unbeliever. In which case, the believing spouse would be free from the bond of marriage and free to remarry as well. Now, these are the potential grounds for divorce and remarriage in the New Testament, and they are two, and they are only two. Sexual immorality, which in marriage would amount to adultery, and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now, a couple of, these, a couple of observations before I address the, the third point. First, divorce and remarriage clauses in Scripture are always concessions, never commands. And that's so important. I want to say that again. A divorce or remarriage clause in Scripture is always a concession, never a command. In Matthew 19, we heard read for us, the Pharisees assume it's a command. They say, why did Moses command us to put away our wives? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to put away your wives. There's a big difference between the two. That's really important. It means that our last resort is divorce, not our first. It also means that there may be situations, even in the face of adultery, that a marriage can be healed, and reconciliation ought to occur. Such is the power of grace. Such is the power of the gospel. I've seen it on multiple occasions. When repentance is real, reconciliation between a husband and wife can and should occur. The second observation is that the more that I've considered the two grounds in the New Testament for divorce and remarriage, potential divorce and remarriage, I've noticed on the one hand, how utterly serious they are, and on the other hand, how very specific they are. We can set up the observation this way. Like, why adultery and abandonment? Why these two? 
as opposed to any others? And the answer to that question is found in Jesus' commentary in, on Genesis 2.24 that we cited earlier, back in Matthew 19, where Jesus says, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Did you hear him? A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what are the potential grounds for divorce and remarriage in the New Testament? Adultery and abandonment. You see the connection? Adultery strikes at the heart of the one flesh relationship. The moment adultery occurs, another one flesh relationship has begun. Not a marriage but a one-flesh relationship. 1 Corinthians, 16, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that. When a man joins himself to a prostitute, they become one flesh. Not married, but they become joined together in a profound way. So adultery cuts at the heart of the one-flesh reality. Abandonment undoes the other one. The, the leave and cleave principle, the leave and hold fast reality. So in other words, when a spouse's sin strikes at the very heart of marriage itself through adultery or abandonment, the potential, not the foregone conclusion, but the potential for divorce and remarriage exists. Now I've gone a long way on this point, but allow me just to address one last question then we'll outline point three and conclude. And that's just simply this, and it's a serious question. What about abuse? Is physical abuse or sexual abuse, a potential ground for divorce and remarriage according to Scripture? The first response that I would have to a question like that is along the lines of first response itself. And that would be this, that if we as a leadership in this church ever get a whiff that there is anything remotely like that sort of abuse going on inside of a home, we as a church leadership will act quickly and swiftly. You have two pastors here who are legally required as, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Aaron? Mandated reporters, thank you. Mandated reporters. And not only that, but we would seek immediately to provide safety and shelter for the vulnerable spouse. The question here is not, as a fellowship, will we look the other way and ignore spousal abuse. That's not the question. In this case, we will respond and respond swiftly and quickly by calling the police and by securing anyone in danger. The question here is, does an abused spouse have biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage? And my preliminary answer to the question, after taking a deep breath, would be, if they do, it has to be, must be found in connection with 1 Corinthians seven fifteen or it can't be found at all. Which is to say, when Paul speaks of an unbelieving partner separating or abandoning, what we're saying is that the abusive spouse is abandoning their marriage vows. That would be the view. Now, it's an incredibly difficult topic and not one that I'm prepared to give a comprehensive answer at this point in the sermon, but allow me just to say this. When Paul refers to the unbelieving partner separating in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, that in the pages of the New Testament, <clears throat> that word separation doesn't just refer to geographical separation only. It can also refer to relational separation. So in Acts 15.39, we read that Paul and Barnabas separated from each other. Remember, they got so 
they got such in such conflict with each other they couldn't minister together, so they geographically separated. And that's one way that word is used. That may be the way that Paul's using it here. But it's also possible to understand uh, separation in terms of without leaving the physical premises of the home itself, for example. In Romans 8.35, Paul himself asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Is that geographical? No, that's, that's relational. It's the same word. Could spousal abuse then, according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, constitute abandonment? And my tentative answer is, I think that it's possible. I think that it's possible. Now we're over time, so allow me just to encourage us with a final point, and then we'll sum up. And as we move into the days ahead, just understand that we're going to be looking at all of this in greater detail. Our hope is as an eldership for a number of years now, we've been, looking on, we've been working on a document that would summarize what our church believes and teaches and um, is the baseline for corrective church discipline in this church with regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And we hope that in the next uh, season or two that that's coming. But I think a sermon like this is important toward, the, toward that end. So let marriage be held in honor among all. Why? Because of what the Bible says about the definition of marriage, but also because of what the Bible says about the dissolution of marriage. We ought to honor what Scripture says about the dissolution of marriage. We ought to. Finally, Let marriage be held in honor among all because of what the Bible says about the redemption of marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all because of what the Bible says about the redemption of marriage. Here's all I want to do at this point. There's about a million ways that we can go wrong uh, when it comes to what the Bible says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I mean, are you sensing that this morning? For those of us who are married, um, when we consider what God says about the high callings and the roles of husband and wife in the context of the home, and what is it designed marriage to be a drama on which the a stage on which the drama of the gospel is enacted for all the world to see? We come to realize how, how woefully short as husbands and wives we tend to fall, frequently fall from that vision. And that there are others with us this morning among us who have been either divorced or remarried, but outside of the parameters that Holy Scripture offers. There are those of us this morning who have thought long and hard about this issue of what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage and like me have wrestled with the scriptures just wanting to come to a biblical conclusion and like me you've shifted back and forth and you felt unsteady as water when it comes to formulating your view whatever camp we happen to find ourselves in this morning it is my privilege to commend and remind us what God offers in the gospel of his son and that would be redemption Psalm 34.22 says that the Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be put to shame. Psalm 103 verse 4 assures us that God redeems your life from the pit. And to every person in the sanctuary today that believes the lie that their sin places them too far beyond the pale of God to reach. The Lord asks in Isaiah 50 verse 2, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? In Colossians 1, 13 to 14, the Apostle Paul reminds every believer among us this morning that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this morning, married or single, Believer 
or unbeliever, turn to Christ and find redemption. Whether for the first time or for the millionth time, through his death and resurrection, Jesus is in the business of putting sinful, rebellious, broken people and marriages back together again for the glory of his name. One of the supreme ways that we hold marriage in honor is by recognizing the redemptive possibilities present in this remarkable covenant relationship. So let marriage be held in honor among all. Why? Because of what the Bible says about the definition of marriage. Because of what the Bible says about the dissolution of marriage. Because of what the Bible says about the redemption of marriage. Mount Evangelical Free Church, our reverence for marriage is extraordinary because our reverence for Jesus is extraordinary. Let's be a people who hold marriage high because we hold Jesus high. And while our culture continues to seek to redefine and tear down and in many cases just abandon marriage altogether, by the way, I don't think that the only reason I haven't done a wedding in four years, last wedding I did was Seth and Brianna's four years ago, the only reason isn't just because of my view on the permanence view, it's that fewer people are getting married today. Did you know that? I've asked other pastors, I've spent time with guys at lunch, and I say, when's the last time you did a wedding? And it's like crickets chirping. Very strange thing our culture is working its way through right now. Our culture is seeking to abandon marriage. So let's be about the reverse of that. Let's carefully define marriage in this church. Let's intentionally live out and joyfully recover what Scripture says about the institution of unparalleled importance for our families and for our churches and for our community for our world, our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus has to do with marriage. And if we care about that mission, we'll care about marriages, our own as well as those within our broader community. So may our church, particularly over this next year in 2019, as we seek to launch a counseling center, be a rich resource into the days ahead for the establishing and the defense and the mending and the flourishing of marriages for the glory of God and for the ingathering and upbuilding of all of Christ's flock. Amen? Let's pray.